0: And it's a common mistake that some people think that the Trail of Tears was named that because the Cherokee Nation was crying. But it was not the Cherokee Nation. They were stone-faced, stoic, and walking, looking straight ahead. And the people who cried were the, those that came and watched us walk. Walk.
1: Welcome back to In Session with Jared and Clay. I'm Dr. Jared Cox. I'm glad you're here. I want to say thanks to everyone who came out when we were at Harding University the other day. I love getting the chance to meet some of you and hear your input about the show. Definitely appreciate you listening. You know, university voices are the voices of change in so many ways. Minds are open. Minds are growing. And we need those university voices to be strong. So we were glad to be there. But 15 minutes after our scheduled stage time, I'm getting nervous. I have a flight to catch. Little Rock has a small airport with only a few flights each day. Add in that most of them require connections. Add in the recent cutbacks to the airline industry. And that leaves me only one flight that works. I look at the event schedule. and The speaker in front of us has only been given 20 minutes. But she has some very important things to say, and I'm glad I'm getting to hear them. But I hate being late to the airport. Will I have enough time to eat? Is there going to be more than one line open at TSA? Will the people in front of me be experienced travelers? Or will they have to empty three bags to find one iPad? What if I get caught speeding on the way there? All these questions start flooding my brain, but at the same time, I really like listening to this speaker. But it's like I'm hearing two voices. The one in my head that worries about missing my flight And the other voice, the voice of this speaker who wants to educate these university minds as if her heart is connected to their future. I like what she's saying, but I really like how much she wants to say it. It's as if she needs to say these words, like her soul needs to give, to share with the audience. It's really pretty remarkable. She seems to have lost track of time, but she's not lost. She knows where she's going, and she's going there because she loves people, and with every minute she speaks her love into the university audience, the importance of sharing like this becomes increasingly clear, and with just a few minutes remaining, I realize that I'm only hearing one voice. I'm happy to hear her speak. I'm thankful to hear her compassion. I'm thankful to see her teach with love for the people who are listening. We need to let people speak. Let them tell their stories. Hear their compassion. Hear their setbacks. Hear their accomplishments. Hear their love for people. Hear their story in your own. Today, you're going to hear Clay, Greg, and Jason tell their stories. If you remember, Jason asked me last episode about white people knowing we sit in a position of power, and I told him I've never thought of myself like that. I've always been driven to do the best I can, to respect the sacrifices my parents made for me, to build upon the foundation they worked hard to build for our family. Even now I feel that way, although I'm in a position where many people would say I'm successful or I've made it. I just don't see it quite that way. But we'll talk more about my story after the guys share theirs with you. Are you ready?
0: Well, it's really good to be back after not sitting with you guys for um, for a while. It's such an enjoyable time for me, and I hope our listeners uh, like it. But as we said long, long time ago, this is good for me, even if... If nobody listens to it, but you know, obviously we'd like for people to do that. You know, I, I was I was thinking about how we would kick off tonight and I was reflecting back on our last episode and Jason, you had asked a question, a really important question about the awareness of a, of a power position or a privilege position. And I thought that was such an interesting question. And if I remember correctly, you, you, you know, I think you even worded it that way. Was it, a, you know, or white people in general, or are they aware of the kind of the position of power that they hold? And I remember I, because I knew what you were asking and I, I kind of reflect on that question, I knew, you know, I knew what you meant, but I remember Jared seems like fairly quickly just said, no, no, we're not unaware. And, it, and what it did, it, it sparked a story from Jared, and I could tell, myself included, that the story, that Jared's story about his family uh, made an impact on us, you know, in a way that we kind of had this connection that maybe, uh, you know, we hadn't had before. And so all of that set me thinking, you know, about the question and about, and about the response. Mm-hmm. And it is very difficult, I believe, for white people in general to grasp that concept of being in, you know, not, not only as the majority, but being in that kind of position of, of power. And I'm offer at least a feeble attempt at an explanation about that. Because if, if you look back into American history, and as, as we talked about last time, you know, there has to be an acceptance of all... Narratives of history, you know, for us to move forward. And we're kind of, kind of looking at that. And there's some significant events that happen along, along the way that we can point to. One of those, not limited to this, but one of those, you know, in 1929, when the stock market crashed and, and, you know, everybody lost everything you know, for the most part. At least the way that I hear the story mm-hmm. told is that no one really came through that. There's probably a few exceptions, but, you know, everybody lost everything economically. So it was a huge economic reset button. And before you know it, in some very short period of time, everybody was really poor. And then they set out everybody on this path of, kind of recovering, you know, from that event. And so I want to offer for consideration and then circle back around to it in just a minute that one of the reasons I think, you know, white people struggle with that idea is because of that. And that's just been one, two, two and a half generations removed. And all of, you know, our kinfolk, all of your kinfolk, Basically, did the same thing. They started really poor, and they began trying to work up and out of it. Mm-hmm. Now, what I will say is that what's missed, you know, is the idea of opportunity, you know, t- uh, to do that, and that's that's really kind of what we've been talking about. But the disconnect, I think, for white people is they because because they did that, the idea is everybody can do that and and should do that. Again, this is not geared to be any kind of a, you know, bashing white people for that. It's just the facts. It's not about fault. It's just about the facts. So I wanted to tell you a little bit of uh, some of my story and invite you to share a little bit of y'all's with, in terms of your kinfolk that are, are close to this. You guys know I'm part Native American Registered member of the Cherokee Nation. And I actually had a couple of great great grandparents who walked the trail of tears in 1836 and beyond. As you know, the Cherokee Nation was predominantly in North Florida and, you know, in Georgia and South Carolina, North Carolina, East Tennessee, North Alabama. It's pretty, pretty significant. They called us a civilized tribe because we had a language and some printing presses, and we had schools, we had business, we had all kinds of cultural things going. It's a Cherokee nation. And before long, and I can't even really remember who the president was, I think it was Jackson or someone like that, but needless to say, gold was discovered in that region you know, of the country. And just to make the story much shorter, the United States of America wanted that gold, and so the Cherokee Nation was faced with the the non-choice of going to war, an unwinnable war in which you would simply be wiped out, or accepting the relocation. And so... They took all that land away from us and moved us west into Oklahoma Territory. And the Cherokee people walked. They didn't walk because they were forced to walk. In fact, they were offered rides in wagons and horses, but we refused. And we walked from that area all the way to Oklahoma. And as the story goes, the people would line up, you know, the settlers and other people heard about the whole dilemma, and they would line up and watch as the nation traversed through. And, of course, the old, you know, the sick, sometimes the very young along the way, died. They just, they just couldn't make it. And we wouldn't put them in a wagon either. We carried them. They scooped them up and carried them in their arms. And they walked all the way to Oklahoma so they could be buried with their people. They certainly wouldn't bury them along the way. And they wouldn't ride, you know, in a wagon. And it's a common mistake that some people think that the Trail of Tears was named that because the Cherokee Nation was crying. But it was not the Cherokee Nation. They were stone-faced, stoic, and walking, looking straight ahead. And the people who cried were the, those that came and watched us walk. And so my two great-great-actually uh, grandparents walked that trail as adolescent children until they got to Oklahoma Territory. And there was, you know, was, you know, a difficult life. And those were my grandparents on my mother's on my mother's side, and they migrated a little bit west from there. And my my mother's family then homesteaded out in the Oklahoma Territory. My my father's family came from down in the Beaumont, Houston area, Palestine, somewhere down around that area. This was way before the you know great depression, but they they just weren't, you know, they were poor and they got on a horse and rode out to Comanche territory and homesteaded out there. I don't know all the complete story, but on my father's side I have uh some Comanche. But that was never talked about because that was very disgraceful uh, uh, at the time to have any kind of mixed blood with the Comanche Deer. And after the Comanche Wars, it was, you know, pretty significant. But my father's family homesteaded out there in western Oklahoma area, too. You know, and were, were quite poor. My father was born in 1929. And they grew up about through that Great Depression you know, through that time. And so none of my kinfolk going past my father ever went to school, you know, except through the eighth or ninth grade. And we were quite poor as well. And my father did go to college. He was able to go and get his uh, degree in electrical engineering and, and through the military and that, you know, did pretty well. And I came along, I'm an only child and and I went to college, but I never really knew the depth of, of all of that and, and how close I was to that level of being poor and out there. I just, I just went to school because I thought everybody went to school. And my dad had never really said, you know, I'm a first generation college student in our family. And, um, you know, this is kind of what we wanna do, you know, and want to go to school and 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 work hard. I just kind of took that for granted and never thought about it you know much after that, and so my family i think is is very typical mm-hmm. you know of most families, and it sounds you know it goes right along kind of with what Jared was saying mm-hmm. the last time as he talked about his Family, and if I remember right, correct me if I'm wrong, but they, you know, I had to go out to California and find work in the peach orchard because it, there was there was just no work. Everybody was really poor, and and your folks didn't go to college, right? I mean, you're, you're, right. And you're right. You're younger than I am, and you're a first generation college educated person in your family. And I tend to think that most. Most people think of white people maybe having all gone to college for generations, maybe for a long time. Am I, do you, do y'all think that's the case? I don't know. Cause I've never thought about it. I've never really had the conversation that we had. And then it started coming kind of in my mind like, well, I wonder what the presuppositions are. You know of everyone Juneteenth. You shared a little of your story, and it was so powerful and moving. Get can would you share a little of that? Yeah.
2: yeah. So the uh, the Cliff Notes version is my family is rare in that we know our history. Mm-hmm. Uh, we could trace it back to Guinea, but of course the borders changed, so we kind of don't know exactly. But mm-hmm. we wind up in uh, in Galveston, my. Great grandmother five generations ago is a slave, along with her sister and cousin, and they end up in Galveston. And uh, over the course of time, emancipation proclamation occurs, and our family is freed. And they remain in Galveston, trying to upward mobility, right? Mm-hmm. To 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 figure out a way, you know. And uh, we 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 talk and we say, well, our family didn't receive the the forty acres and a mule, so we're right. really struggling to figure out how to make this thing happen uh eventually you know we we find our way through the farming industry mm-hmm. all of that good mm-hmm. stuff just like most people do when they first get here right mm-hmm. and eventually my family starts the tradition of men if you want to move up in life you join the army uh, right. because the army provides opportunities that you can't get on your own right mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. so my family started joining the military early very very early uh fast forward uh two more generations my grandfather is born in I, I believe 34 34 and you know they lived under segregation and jim crow and it was really hard to to figure out your way because you were viewed as less than and you're seeking opportunities but it's hard to find them it's hard to yeah. gra- it's hard to get there because of the color of your skin that's that's that right. was the reason it, yeah. it, it wasn't for any other reason it was You're black, you stay over there, and you guys figure it out on your own. And it was difficult, right? So Mm -hmm. grandpa joins the army, and that provides an opportunity for him to get uh, the money to to go to college and to move. Uh, So he joins the army, gets to see the world, and he goes, I'm not coming back to the south. There is no way I'm staying in Galveston because I've seen different parts of the world. So during the second migration, Great Migration, Mm -hmm. he decides to head west, and he goes to California. There he has a tough time, and the only way he's allowed into certain spaces is someone in a position of power opens up a door for him and allows him to come and climb up and to get in, right? Mm -hmm. So that's how he got to UC Berkeley. Some some white brethren in the church said, we think he's talented, we're going to support him, we're going to help him, put some monies in his pocket, and he works his way through UC Berkeley. Then my father goes to UC Berkeley, does very well, and then the, the, the rest is history. But it took for us having to join the Army. like we That was the only way for us right. to find real work and to find a way for us to figure this thing out. So me being part of third generation, I sit with a lot of blessings and I realize that I'm really far removed from the struggle. Like my family always had a little bit of money. It wasn't much. We weren't rich. Mm-hmm. It was military income, but we were doing pretty well. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I'm kind of disconnected from the struggle in a lot of ways. Even as I look at other black families, I'm like, man, I, I, I don't connect or even poor families say black, but yeah. poor families. I, I tend to go, come on, get up here, get up. I I tend to do that. But then I have to catch myself and go, man, the only reason we are where we are is someone actually opened a door for us and allowed us to come up. (laughs) They provided an avenue for us to get there. And they told us, you're skilled enough, you're smart enough, don't let your race stop you, and you can be where we are. That's what provided a, a route for my family to upward mobility. Right, so.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. You know, you one thing you said and I've often thought this. And and you you touched on it that the military does provide an opportunity yeah. for everyone seems mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. don't they? And I've often wondered it seems like I guess the, the people taking part of that opportunity seems to be less and less. And I yes. wonder why. Yes. And it maybe it's political in the sense of that we're disconnected from I don't want to serve a country that is mm-hmm. this this and this, but what a shame because one of the avenues as you said to seize opportunity is being diminished and see that's systemic, circular, recursive. Yeah. yeah. Consequences yeah. that that some people—it's not so simple as to say, "Hey, join the military." Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. you know, okay, but you kind of need to believe in yeah, what you're doing yeah, yeah. a little bit.
2: Well, I will and, tell you, yeah. uh, the the military's changed a lot. Just thinking mm-hmm. about the army, the slogan of the army when when. when you know, my family was getting in, was be all, be you, all can you can be, be. right? Yeah. So you're yeah. thinking about, man, I can use this to get the GI Bill mm-hmm. and to get this paid for. And then there's a shift that took place. And now we say we're we're an army of one, right? So we move from upward mobility for the individual and the family to we're just one. Mm-hmm. We're just one. And I think that has, you know, because honestly, the reason why we joined the Army was was initially not to serve. Right. Why serve a country that doesn't care about us, right? For for the most part. That's the way we, you know. Yeah, that's that's how you organized
0: around. Right, right. But
2: if this provides us an opportunity to get over here, you better believe we'll sign up for the Army. And now it's shifted. Their slogans and motto has shifted a bit. And I don't know what caused that that shift, right? Mm -hmm. To get off of me and focus on the we. Mm -hmm. I, I get that. But now people look at the military and they go, why would I? would i do that why would i get sent overseas to fight in a war that i don't believe in and all this good stuff so it's been an interesting shift yeah very very interesting
0: yeah. shift. yeah has. So. greg what, what about your well, folk
3: yeah that was you know that's an, an neat story because i'm a i'm gonna tell the military played a big role in where i'm at and i don't know many people don't know that my dad is uh uh, the second of, of uh, I think there were seven, uh, two, two didn't make it. So only five that I knew. Mm-hmm. Of course, his mom was the oldest of 14. Wow. So my great-grandma, who, who actually passed away my senior year of high school, wow! Would, ha- would, would have a baby, and then they she'd go right back out to the field and go work. Mm. You know, just having them and having her Because I was like, good night. She must have had a baby like every other day (laughs) because it was, I mean, it was, but you know, my, my, I I never knew my great grandfather. He passed away before I, before I was uh, around. And my, my, my grandmother, my dad's mom passed away two weeks after I was born. So I didn't really know her either, but um, the stories of of her just absolutely phenomenal. But my mom and dad grew up with nothing. You know, mom, mom, dad lived in a, in a small house and he born in Phoenix city, Alabama, and then grew up in a small house in Pompano beach, Florida. Mom grew up in Sarasota, Florida and in the projects, what, what they called. And my grandmother lived there for years. Matter of fact, that's when we used to go visit her. We, we, we stayed in, in the projects with her, with her, um, so I was never far removed, even though we always lived pretty much in an all white neighborhood. Mm-hmm. I was born in Kansas City, Missouri. My parents had gone to college in Kansas City, Missouri after my dad finished uh his his four four or five years of being a Marine. Mm-hmm. My dad went into Marines. And um the Marines provided him mm-hmm. that opportunity to to be educated and to go. He went from from high school to the Marines and from the Marines to college and went on and got his master's degree. Um, mom was there with him. They got married while in college, finished that, their master's. So the expectation of me was that I was going to take it a step further. The PhD behind my name is was always mm-hmm. there, even when I didn't really want it to be there. Yeah. <laughs> it was something that was yeah. almost like an expectation. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I grew up, and I told this story just the other day. I grew up in, in mostly white neighborhoods, mostly always being one of the only black kids at school in my class, but always going to an all black congregation. Church was always was mm-hmm. always an all black congregation. I don't necessarily know why that was, but you know, for for me it was it was great because I got to I was exposed to to everything. With that many aunts and uncles and people on my uh, dad's side, you know, again, his mom, the first of 14 with that many people, there was a little bit of everything in our family. I mean, there was projects. There was people that still lived in the small houses and, you know, there was, there was that and, and there was, you know, we, you have a nice house. You live in a, a little bit nicer neighborhood and, you know, I went to private school pretty much all my life, except for kindergarten and first grade. And the expectation for me was, and you kind of hit on this, to always be surrounded and make it and, and be put in an environment where I had to compete in a way to to for the grade, so that I can stay kind of stay at my mom always reminding you you have to work twice as hard as everybody else does. Because as a black man, you were going to have to, nothing's going to be given to you. So you have to work. And it was just ingrained in me, ingrained in me from from the time I was little till now. Mm-hmm. And so that's just, you know, a little bit about my background. And so I get out and people don't know, I, I almost went to the army. You know, I, I had that opportunity to go. I just, you know, the war started, uh, what was it, Desert Storm? started in, I guess that was 1990, 90, 91, 91. It was the beginning of my second semester. And I remember I was in the weight room by myself when, when we, when we fired the first shots or bomb and, and I was listening to it on the radio and I was thinking, you know, of course I probably would not have been there because I was going to go play football at West Point. So I doubt I would have been a part of that, but I was just thinking, this is where I could have been. That could have been the life that I was going into, and I, I just chose not to choose that. I was, I was I wanted to go play sports, I wanted to go and get my education, wanted to go get my masters. The expectation was for me to get my doctorate. I didn't do that right away, but, you know, but I, and so, kind of like Jason, I never really experienced the hardships that my mom and dad did, you know, mm-hmm. where they grew up and, dad having to work in the fields he picked peas and you know he played sports but he'd come home and he'd work in the fields and do his homework you know he didn't drive home from high school like I did you know he walked home or rode a bus or ran home or whatever and still and this was after sports and still had to work in the field and still had to do his homework and do all those things and like I said his way out was military his way out was military He had had uncles, and then another big thing in my family also was HBCUs. Mm, Yes. So a lot of my relatives went to Florida A&M University, Bethune-Cookman. Those two schools are big in my my background because all my relatives pretty much reside in Florida, originated in Florida, Mm -hmm. South Georgia, Florida area. So Bethune-Cookman and Florida A&M educated – a lot of people in my family tuskegee for us yes yeah. yes yeah. yes and it, it went on to be alabama state some right. went on to alabama state and so when i did i i did get uh a couple of letters football letters from from those schools and boy i i highly i remember going to florida a&m and the marching 100 and seeing the mm-hmm. atmosphere there and i dated a girl when i was working on masters that went to florida a&m and, that was something that was big on my mind, but I I ended up going to in Charlotte, North Carolina to go play college soccer and um, and love that and uh, but that was a big thing with us and uh, I that can't be that's something that can't be understated because you know we don't talk about HBCUs it's starting to kind of funny make a little bit of a resurgence yes. right now especially yes. athletically because you you've had a couple of basketball players that are some of the top players in the land that have committed to some of those schools. And then of course, now last week, what Deion, Deion, Sanders. Sanders. Deion, Sanders. Deion, Deion. Sanders now is at uh, Jackson, Jackson state. state. So that's become a big thing. And, and that's, I, you know, I don't think that's by coincidence either with some of the nature of the beast of what's going on right now in our world that, mm-hmm. you know, people are maybe starting to see that as, More of an option, maybe, or more of a fit for them. It's, it's. I'm curious. I'm, I'm interested. But um,
0: yeah, it is interesting.
3: Just a little. That's just a little about my story.
0: It seems to me that you know, at least the the four of us have very similar backgrounds in one way. Mm -hmm. Of course, some some of them are uh, diverse. But I'm not so sure that there's more sameness, if we can use that word, than there is difference. And it sets me thinking, I wonder how, you know, I wonder if that's true with a large number of people, but they just don't know it, and they're just not aware of where we kind of all come from, and, you know, and why is it that the four of us share those kind of similarities, and we're... You know, we're kind of discovering it. But I have to say, you know, that there are still those. I mean, we're fortunate. I mean, the four of us are fortunate mm-hmm. for whatever reason. However it comes into play, I don't, whatever you want to attribute it to, we're fortunate. And we had some opportunities, really all four of us. You know, but there are segments of our population that don't have those same kind of opportunities mm-hmm. again maybe for a various you know number of reasons but nonetheless you know if the opportunity's not there you know it's not there and to, with a broad stroke to brush everybody into you know the same category that all it takes is a desire you know to uh, you know to work hard and then you've got it made. I mean, that is certainly an important variable, but it's not always, you know, that simple. Mm-hmm. And, it, and
3: making you know, it looks different for some people than it does for others. You know, make it out of this or make it out of that or to make it to college or to just make it through high school or, you know, what? how do you define that for certain families or people wherever they come from? I mean mm-hmm. – you know there this is a this is a very it's a great great discussion because some of my family may feel that they have made it depending on where they came from as opposed to you know where i was which was in a different place mm-hmm. making it look different expectation was probably a little different so when you said that that phrase right there, Coach, I, I just, you know, it just hit me. Making it for me was different than making it for somebody else because we came from two different places, mm-hmm. and, and even though we're still family, uh, yeah, yeah. it's just a different look.
0: Two different starting points, no doubt. So uh, I think I think I told you this uh, off the air one time because it makes it makes such a difference. I. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm pretty old, but I, I think if I was racing Usain Bolt, <laughs> you remember me saying this? yeah, I, I remember I think this that was off the air. If you if if me and Usain Bolt race in the hundred yard dash, but you let me start at the ninety yard mark, I think I can beat him. <laughs> I'm gonna beat the fastest guy in the world. If you let me pick my starting place now right. we can't always pick our starting place but if i'm starting at the 90 yard mark and i'm beating usain bolt but i think it's a f- even race i mean that that's that's problematic mm-hmm. i mean that is not very intelligent on my part to go you know right. i'm i go 10 yards and he goes he has to go 100 you know
2: let me say this coach um I hope you would win. (laughs) Right? But Usain Bolt is a unicorn. We call him a unicorn, right? Yes. I mean, not everybody can do what he does. And a lot of times what we do is we compare other people to the unicorns of our society. And we say, if that person can make it, then anybody could make it. Got a funny story for you. I uh, Facetime with Denzel Washington on Saturday. I wow. saw that, Yeah, man. it was the craziest situation ever I- I- in life, right? That is so, so, so he's so, coming to the show. He's man. coming to the show. You heard that, uh, Mr. Washington? Come, come on, swing through, swing through. I was looking at, at his story about his upbringing, mm-hmm. and he had a rough upbringing, too, and he got in trouble, and he messed up in life, and went backwards, and... You know, he talks about how he's experienced some trauma and Mm -hmm. the trauma is hard for him to get over. But eventually, you know, he worked hard and he was committed to success and opportunities were given to him, presented to him, and he was able to capitalize on those opportunities. But not everybody is Denzel. You can't there's only a one 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 Denzel. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the problems we have in our society. We're always comparing and say, if that person can make it out, if Ben Carson can can separate Siamese twins, anybody can do it. And it's like, well, you know, I have a brother who who struggles with mental illness, right? Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. he's living on the streets. And I don't know, I, I used to do this. I don't do it now, but I would look at homeless people and say, man, you need to go get a job, work yourself up, get up. And really he 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 cannot
3: do that because yeah.
2: yeah. he, he has so much trauma mm-hmm. that it's hard for him to get to that place. And I think that's a conversation that, we need to have more mm-hmm. and just realize it because of racism because of segregation because of whatever mass incarceration broken families right people some you know people are experiencing trauma and i would say that's not even on just the black side the white side too right and Absolutely. when you experience those traumas it's hard to 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 work your way up so to put everybody in the same bucket and say man we all need to that, that's kind of it's kind of unfair yeah
0: you know? Yeah, and it's certainly not very compassionate. Not compassionate right. at
3: all. Yeah, you know, in, in 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 sports, if you if you look, and this happens, I know a lot with basketball coaches, but they recycle. They hire a lot of the same coaches over and over and over again, and these coaches get the same job. Soccer does too, actually. Over in over in Europe, you see these coaches that have been at so many different clubs because they're they're experienced coaches. They've won before, but they've also been fired. Right, so you're fired, and it's public, and it's international news, and you know it's it's embarrassing. But these other jobs open up, and you get this. But there's a lot of coaches out there that have never get that opportunity, and so uh, a situation that just came up for a job, and you hire this coach or you hire this coach. Well, this coach is has a little something they've done it before he or she knows the the system and they've they have the background, even though this coach here may be had the potential even for more talent, but they haven't yet worked their way up or worked their way through, so they they this person ends up getting this job and they keep getting it over and over again. It's just like this person's been fired four or five times. Why would they keep getting rehired?
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Well, they know they know they've had some success, but even though they failed, mm-hmm. they had some success. And so we keep going back and forth to those people. And so, you know, I think about that and I even think about, you know, you, you mentioned uh, coach, the, the depression where everybody get, got hit, but not everybody had, had worked their way out before or had had that opportunity before to to do work. So when people got hit, I think there was a certain group that knew they knew the system. They suffered like everybody else did, but they also had a more of an opportunity to work their way out whereas some they hadn't even, never even worked their way out before the depression. They hadn't even gotten there before the depression. So Mm -hmm. it was even more of a whammy to try to get there after because they didn't even know what to do. And it's hard to, it's hard to teach in this situation with a coach, hiring a coach that has experience because, you know, you can you can educate them as a little a little bit easier. They know something about it, so they can make the adjustments as opposed to having to teach somebody the whole thing. There's a difference, and our world is kind of like that in a way. Is we'd, we'd rather just go with the experience and get this person in, so we don't have to. Instead of this person here, who, like I said, they may have the, all the potential in the world to be one of the best but they're not getting those opportunities. That's one of the things that's going on in college football right now is, is um, they're talking a little bit about just the opportunities for, for black people just to be interviewed. And some ADs, not all of them, are committing to this where some aren't because we just need a, we need a chance. We need an opportunity. And so many of these men that have done so much of this work and have put in and they have the know-how and the ability, but they're not given the opportunity. So I, I do I go back to where, like you said, the ability, it's not even really about ability. It's about opportunity. It's about starting line. You, some people start so much further ahead.
0: It's kind of the fact. I mean, it's not, it's certainly not fair. It's not just right, but it, it's a it's a fact, and but me starting at the ninety yard mark, I mean, I have to be a, I kind of need to be aware of that. No doubt, I need to be grateful and do whatever I can to close that gap. It's a silly illustration because I, I'm not competing really. I mean, we're all trying to collaborate, you know. But I it's got,
3: a good illustration. I I do think it's a good one. I mean, it, the other thing though is. Uh, you know, if, if
0: I hold an expectation, I guess that that Usain Bolt should catch me. You know, by the time I traverse ten yards and he goes a hundred, and then me look at him in a condescending, <laughs> <Right>. Like, <laughs> oh, gee, you're, but you're, you're what, so slow. What's wrong with you? You know, <laughs> you, you, can, know you know what I be in, with it. What
3: know? I'd be interested yeah. in is what kind of effort would Usain Bolt give? Oh, well, uh,
0: that's interesting. Yeah, to
3: see you to see you ninety yards ahead would he just say, "Oh, I'm not going to win this," and then not even give the effort? Because the flip side of what I'm saying too is a lot of us start behind and we use that as an excuse to stay where we're at. Mm-hmm. My dad didn't. Your dad didn't. Your granddad didn't. You, you didn't. You didn't. Coach, your dad didn't. And that's partially why we all are where we where we are today. Now, like you said, we've mm-hmm. we've been blessed. I, I, good grief, I can't I can't deny that. But my dad grew up; he's been blessed. You know, i will just be honest. Financially, he's better off than I'll ever be. Mm-hmm. And he started picking peas in the fields. Right. Where I I didn't have to do that. I never had a job until my senior year of high school. I never had to. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he started. He he was Usain Bolt. He started that race mm-hmm. pretty far yeah. behind, and he ran, and he ran, he ran hard. He gave effort, and even at times when he lost, it still didn't deter him from continuing to work.
0: Yeah, and I I don't want to sound accusatory. No, like there, you know, but wouldn't it wouldn't it be a pretty normal human reaction to look? You know, 90 yards up there, and it's like, I mean, why Why am I going to run? Why am I going to put everything into that? I mean, it's not going to matter. You know, I wish we knew all of our stories better, you know, which is why we sit around and, you know, and talk. I
3: always wonder what is it about our stories or where we've been that has brought us to this table. That has made us even willing to talk mm-hmm. when there's so many out there that that aren't, you know and, and where you've been with military and coach, where you've been even with with um, with your background and then with athletics and coaching mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and everything, and Jared, you're same you you went to college and played sports, and you were very active and involved, but again, like I said, I was pushed into arena. Where I was forced to be around so many people that were different than me, from the time I was little, and that's what my parents did. And then moving down to Fort Lauderdale, Florida, where there's everything. You know, in Florida, Mm -hmm. there's you go to church. I had Jamaican, I had Hispanic, I had, you know, there's there's everything down there. So you you're learning to mix with the different cultures. So that brings us. Here, where I, it's not hard for me to relate, but I know some people, so, so many people don't have that experience. And so, just being here, able to come here to talk. Right.
0: And how do we fabricate that? And I, and I do think that is one thing that informs our discussion and maybe helps our listeners is that real, real change, I believe, is not going to happen from the top down. That would be nice, and we often protest and ask for that kind of leadership and everything, and I, I'm not saying it could never happen, but to sit around and wait for that kind of change to happen from the top down, I think we'll really be sadly disappointed, mm-hmm. but it starts here. I mean, it starts in our community at grassroots level with with people who live with people and who will talk and share and, and be something that looks different than what you see on the, on the news. And I'm convinced there's a lot more of that than we know. And if, uh, you know, if, if anything like this can encourage people or inform the discussion or give them hope that, that things really can change and they, it just starts with, you know, me and you and in our community and at our little school and at the grocery store and at the church or, you know, it's, it's just people, people live with people. Governments don't, you know, live with, with people. And and eventually that somehow moves up maybe and the change, you know, gains momentum. But I just thought, you know, at this, at this juncture that, that, sharing some of those stories just with ourselves and maybe our listeners would be yeah. would somehow make some, some connections.
3: Can we be people Might like, be you know, like, you know, Jason's grandfather that, that empowered him. You said like he came in touch with some people that, yeah, you know, I, I think that we can be those people, mm-hmm. you know, that, that
0: open uh, some doors, open
3: some doors. We have to, we have to,
2: how dare us if we don't. Absolutely.
3: Yeah. I mean Absolutely. to cut you off.
2: No, I, no, no. Okay, please, yeah, please, yeah. no. You know, I was uh I saw a Facebook post that really uh just made me kind of laugh a little bit. It was a picture of Jesus feeding the five thousand and I think someone was standing in the background of the picture and was like they need to all go get jobs and get off of this social <laughs> <way>. <laughs> right? yeah. quit,
0: quit grouping up <laughs> Quit here. grouping
2: up and looking for a free meal, right? And then I, I just think about the way of Christ, you know, in Mark, he feeds five. And then yes. in chapter 8, he feeds four, and he's always providing opportunities. And then at the end of it, after all the people have gotten their fill and they've been healed from leprosy and all this good stuff, Jesus says, if you're going to be my disciples— take up your cross daily, and do what I'm doing. So I think yeah. the message for me is yeah. we have to be in the business of providing opportunities for people. But in this dog-eat-dog world that we live in, mm-hmm. I mean, I just even think about my own job and what I do right now, right? I'm I'm nervous. I don't want somebody to come in and take my job, so I don't know about opening up a door. So we have to we have to change that whole mentality, yeah. and that's hard. And I'm wondering, you know, you talked a little bit about government. I wonder... If the government and this sounds bad, if the government is purposely continuing this dialogue for for some reason, I I don't know, you know, and the reason why I say that is because this just dawned on me, you know, we have basically two main political parties, you know, Republicans Mm -hmm. and Democrats, you know what their colors are? Red and blue, mm-hmm. you, you know the biggest gangs in America. You know what their colors are. Yeah. Red and blue, <laughs> <Right. Bloods laughs> right. in the, the floods and the Crips, right? <laughs> so, is I'm wondering if again we're all just falling captive to the prevailing bullies that want this to be pushed for whatever reason because they're competing against themselves, and then we divide ourselves into camps. And mm-hmm. and I I I think we have the responsibility. To say no, 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 no. There's there's another option. There's another way to to bring this about. It's not one side winning and the other side losing. It's 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 different. Yeah. It's different. And we can do it in a different way. And that's why our voices are so, so important. Yeah. So yeah, important.
0: So. You know, yeah. it made me think your story about Jesus and and feeding the multitudes. And how he you know, was taking the opportunity and kind of meeting their needs there, and it strikes me that they were all gathered with their own agenda trying to force him into some military occupation of Rome. So all these 5,000 people, they don't even understand it. They're mistaken. They don't have the right policy. They don't have the right thinking. They're not all on the same page. They just see, wow, here's this. There's something about this guy, and I've heard what he can do. Mm-hmm. I've even seen what he can do. And if there's anybody that can overthrow this Roman yes. oppression, then it's him. So I'm going to show up. I'm going to follow him. And one of the interesting things about the story is it said uh, they sat in groups of 50 and 100. <laughs> 100, right which is actually, you know, military divisions. And they they sat down there and they looked at him like, basically, here's your army. We're ready to go fight. And he said, well, I think I'll feed you. <laughs> <laughs> and so can you see the scene? They're all eating. And then he just says, thanks for coming. Have a good day. <laughs> and and they, they got to be perplexed i mean they got to be going no we're we're ready to go fight we know what's right we know what needs to happen we know the answers you know to all of this mm-hmm. and he just says uh eh, thanks for coming and i wonder if we're not all kind of in the same position at least thinking we know the answers and the answer may be something like we should need to love people and feed people and give them a drink, give them something to, to wear when they need it, right? And maybe be content with that. I don't know. Just something to think about. Man, I appreciate you guys coming out uh, tonight. Can we continue some dialogue? Can we do this again?
3: have to. Sure. I'm all up for it, brother. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, good. I'm all in it. Appreciate you guys a lot. So everybody out there, find somebody you don't know and do something kind for them. Amen.
3: That's right.
1: It's so interesting to me to hear those guys' stories. Hearing Clay talk about his great-greats walking the trail of tears with no rides, carrying their own dead. The sense of unity they showed, it should never be forgotten. I can barely imagine what that was like, but Clay does, and he still lives with that influence. Even though he is successful and a few generations removed from the Trail of Tears, he has not forgotten. Jason has been shown a way to success as his dad and grandfather found opportunity in the Army. But just because Jason is third generation doesn't mean he gets to start ahead. No matter how high the previous generation climbed, Jason had to start at the bottom of the Army just like everyone else does. Greg's story is interesting to me because he is just one generation removed from the projects, yet he was expected to get his doctorate degree. He lived in white neighborhoods but went to black churches. Greg's parents were building success, but Greg wasn't allowed to take anything for granted, and he was expected to go even further. This show is largely about hoping you will have the courage to look inside yourself, to ask questions, and to talk about it. You may not think you have anything inside you that contributes to racism. You also may not think you have anything inside you that can help, but I hope you'll look Sometimes if we just think through our stories, understanding emerges that leads to more awareness. If you think through your story, what does it say about the issue of starting lines? What does it say about how you can help? My story tells me that I can be a voice of belief. My life started humbly. Not as bad as others, but humbly for sure but I wasn't surrounded by voices of defeat. Despite my parents having grown up very poor, I never heard them talk about unfairness and I never saw them quit anything. My dad grew up in an environment where he was surrounded by voices that valued discipline and they valued work ethic, but they strongly repressed education and opportunity. But my parents, they were determined to fill my mind with a voice of belief belief that I can write my own story. They built upon the humble foundation laid for them and taught me to keep building through education and matching every opportunity with determination. It's like they fought for me. So belief in myself is always the first and most powerful voice my mind hears. And because I hear that voice all the time, I run. I run if I'm behind I run if I'm ahead. I run if I think there is no chance of winning. But not everyone does. Not everyone is surrounded by enough voices of belief. Many people hear too often from the voice of repression. They hear too often from hopelessness. Those voices need to be overwhelmed by voices of belief. That's what we can do. That's how we can help. No one needs to hear defensiveness. They need to hear your soul. No one needs to hear denial or dismissal. They need to hear compassion because those voices breed belief. People live with people, and we need more voices of belief. I hope you want to be one. You can be one. I believe in you. Thanks again to Greg and Jason for being a part of this show. And thank you for listening today. If you like what you heard, tell your friends to check us out on InSessionPodcast.com. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and soon to be more. It's been great to be with you today. We'll see you next time on In Session with Jared and Clay.